Welcome to the Inner Network Podcast. I'm your host, Kyla Kaplan, and today I'm joined by Kayla Greaves. Kayla is an award-winning journalist and senior beauty editor at InStyle. She was previously the fashion and beauty features editor at Bustle and a lifestyle editor at the Huffington Post. Her work has appeared in BuzzFeed, Teen Vogue, Elle, Fashion Magazine, and more. In today's episode, we discuss how she's seen the industry shift in terms of spotlighting Black-owned businesses, how to authentically support women of color businesses, and the behind the scenes of being an editor at a major publication. I'll be linking her social media in the show notes, but in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Hi, Kayla. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, fellow Kayla. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) And I love your name too. (laughs) You know what? I was actually going to ask because, so my name is spelled Kayla, but it's actually pronounced Kyla. And so my whole life I've been having this battle of, you know, it makes sense because it's spelled Kayla, but it's pronounced Kyla. So whenever I see someone that's named Kayla, I always want to ask how their name is pronounced because maybe (laughs) I'm not the only one. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I totally feel you. I wouldn't have guessed it was Kylie either. Yeah, it's, I mean, it shouldn't be. I think my parents just, I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get started, I just want to play a quick game of this or that. So I'll give you two things and I'll just have you pick one. Okay. Awesome. So the first is, would you rather live in Toronto or New York? That's hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say because my family's in Toronto, but I like my life in New York. Yeah, um, that's tough. But if I could somehow transport my family to New York, I would stay in New York. <laughs> so I guess New York's the answer. <laughs> what are the big differences, would you say, with... so? I'm from Vancouver, but I moved to Toronto and, you know, I've been to New York a few times, but there is a big difference. But of course, if you live there, you notice it a a lot more. So what would you say is the big difference between the two cities? I think New York is basically just like Toronto on steroids. Like Toronto is a fantastic city. It's just, it's limited in some ways, whereas New York kind of feels like you can do like sky's the limit Mm -hmm. or maybe not even the sky. Like there is no limit in New York as to what you can do. I think that's the main difference for me. Yeah. And I I think too, with Toronto, it seems really big, but when you're actually living there, it's really not that big of a city. Small circle of people in Toronto for sure. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, the next one is, would you rather have iced coffee or hot coffee? Iced coffee. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Would you rather have sweats all day or get ready for work? See, if you had asked me this, like in early 2020, before everything came crashing down, I would have said sweats all day. Yeah. (laughs) But now I miss getting ready for work. So I would pick getting dressed up for work. I miss wearing clothes so much. Yeah. And just like getting ready and putting on makeup. I feel like it just makes a whole difference to your day. Totally. Totally. And I mean, whenever things go back to normal, like three months in, I'll probably be sick of it. Mm -hmm. But all that to say, I do miss fashion for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Especially being in New York. I feel like everyone there is so fashionable. Totally. Totally. Awesome. And then the last one is, would you rather listen to music while you're working or listen to a podcast? I would say I probably listen to music because it's hard for me to focus on someone talking while I'm trying to read, which is so much of what I do and also writing. I like would get the words jumbled up. 
Yeah. <laughs> so no, definitely that. music. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm the same way. Awesome. So before we get into, you know, your role as a senior beauty editor at InStyle, I'd love to know a little bit more about your career journey and how everything's kind of played out for you since graduating from university. Yeah. So I think um, my career journey actually started before I finished university. It started when I was a child because, um, you know, I was the one black girl. And back in the 90s and early 2000s, when I was growing up, there wasn't a lot of um, representation for Black girls. So I never felt as though I was like, pretty or attractive or like my features were good. I felt like everything about me was inherently wrong. Um, And then as I got older, I kind of wanted, I mean, I always wanted, I knew I always wanted to work in media from when I was like a little kid. Beauty was so intentional to me because I wanted to be able to not just make a point about Black beauty, but to normalize Black beauty. Like I think, you know, so many people make a point that they want to be inclusive of stuff, but it's like, it's not about making a point. It's about normalizing something. So it, it sits where everything else sits, right? I think white be- whiteness and white beauty is really the benchmark for a lot of things. And it's how a lot of us, you know, it's, it's the scale that a lot of us use to consider whether or not we're beautiful or whether or not something is attractive, um, because that's all we've been taught. And it's the messaging that is sent to us. But if we have, you know, representation and we have people that look like us and we have a whole new set of beauty standards. So that was kind of my trajectory into it. It was very intentional. When I started working at one of my first newsroom jobs, I was kind of on the lifestyle team, which was very broad. We would cover everything from like food to um, style, to beauty, to entertainment, to everything. And that's where I really was like, okay, beauty is exactly what I want to do. And then all my content would just kind of veer more beauty anyways, or have some type of beauty aspect to it. And I was like, okay, I just need to be in beauty full time. When it came to your passion for writing, you mentioned that you've always wanted to be, you know, in the editorial industry at a young age, how did your writing progress as, you know, you graduated university and you start getting these roles that allowed you to experience different types of writing styles and, you know, writing for different types of topics? How did that progress over time? Well, I actually, well, I always wanted to be in media. I didn't know specifically that I wanted to be a writer at first. I think I was always good at writing, but I didn't see that in myself. I think so often growing up, you know, when you're the only black kid and, um, people kind of look at black kids as like these tyrants and, you know, they're up to no good in schools and things like that. So I was kind of always, even though I was a very smart kid, I always felt, or my teachers always made me feel stupid or they kind of just like, you know, they would make a point that they were like othering me in class. And it wasn't until um, I was in the 10th grade in high school and I had this fantastic English teacher who I still keep in touch with to this day. And I remember it was like the first like real essay I ever wrote and I got like 98% on it and I was like confused I was like wait a minute like is this even the correct mark and she was like yeah like it's really good and that made me realize like okay maybe this is what I'm really good at and it was from that point onwards that I really focused on writing Um, and there were so many people along the journey of me just you know making drawing that line in the sand just saying like you know I want to be a writer full-time and I want to do it in New York and I want to be this journalist in New York and I want to this is the trajectory that I see for myself there's so many people that were like you're crazy there's no way you can do this that's so hard uh you can never survive as a writer blah 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 there were so many people that were like 
don't do it or you can't do it or just doubted me. So thank God I had that confidence instilled in me from that teacher because she really made me feel as though I could do this. Um, And that was, it was so important just for the rest of my career. Yeah. And I think it's pretty rare too, with keeping in touch with a teacher from high school. So it really shows the type of relationship that, you know, both of you have. And I think along the way, it seems like she has become a mentor to you. So I'd love to know your experience when it comes to mentorship and how important that has played a role in your life. Absolutely. I think it's so important to find good mentors and just people who are in the industry came before you and who you can learn something from. I think for me, I haven't really sought out mentors. I've kind of just let relationships grow and kind of build on their own. And it's been so vital for me. Like I think every single person that has, you know, played you know, a role in my career, you know, who's older than me and was in the industry before me, like these are all people I still keep in touch with. It was just, you know, they shared valuable information. They were willing to share their connections with me. They were so helpful and just making me feel like I can actually live this crazy dream that I had in my head. So I think, you know, for young writers who are getting out there, like definitely seek out mentorship, you know, let the relationship progress naturally because it's not every person, you know, you want to be your mentor is going to be a good fit for you. Like let the fit find itself. But I think having a mentor is so vital, you know, when you're getting into this type of career for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, you know, in a way hard to find that relationship. And like you mentioned, you know, allowing it to grow naturally is probably the best way. But do you have any advice when it comes to reaching out to somebody that you look up to and inspires you? And what are the guidelines between asking for that type of mentorship because not everybody has time and not everybody's open to it. Yeah, I think honestly, I would just ask somebody just to have a call, even if it's like a 50 minute call, just reach out and say like, hey, I'm a student or I'm an intern or whatever. You know, I really admire your work. I I understand you're busy. I would just love to like, you know, have a quick conversation with you in terms of my career, my trajectory, whatever it is that you're looking for. I would just have a conversation with them. I wouldn't necessarily say like, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. I would just reach out, talk to them, have a conversation. And then the most important thing is to keep in touch with that person and let them know, you know, what it is that you're up to. So maybe, you know, you keep up in touch with them over Twitter or Instagram or whatever it may be, but just keeping that relationship going and letting it progress naturally and turn into something is the most important thing. I I don't think you can force mentorship just like how you can't force any other type of relationship. You have to just kind of let it flow and let it happen. Yeah. And I think too, it's hard because a lot of people think mentorship is you have to keep in touch, whether it's like every week or every month. And that's not necessarily the case. Like you mentioned, you can follow them on you know, social, you can support them in whatever they do. Absolutely. I think too, like there's definitely times, you know, when people follow up too much and I think some people yeah. can be very overbearing and it's not that it's, you know, done in a, a way like, oh, I'm trying to annoy this person. It's just in a way of, you know, you're very ambitious. You're very eager to do something. But you also have to understand that the person on the other side is an extremely busy person. They have a lot going on. And as much as, you know, they may want to help you, they may not have the time to speak to you every day. Right. So, you know, lightly keeping in touch and, you know, having conversations when necessary is the best way. I think, you know, use your common sense, use your gut and you'll kind of 
be able to know when you should be reaching out to this person. I think that's really great advice. And, you know, coming from you having not necessarily mentors, but people that have guided you along the way, I think that's really great advice. So I want to get into your experience within the editorial industry and beauty industry specifically, and how you've seen the industry change specifically when it comes to representing women of color. I think it's interesting. I think in the 2010s, we saw this kind of wave when the natural, when the second wave natural hair movement was happening, a lot of people were kind of jumping to be diverse and make a point about it. And I think it's kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier is like people want to make a point about being diverse. And I think we're very much so stuck there in the early 2010s or maybe even mid 2010s because I don't think it was early. And then as we approach the end of that decade and now we're in 2020, we're at a place where, you know, it's not about making a point that you're diverse because it's very performative. And I think, you know, people can see through that very easily, but it's about making things, it's about normalizing things, right? It's not about, hey, I did this thing. Give me a round of applause. I included a black girl in this. It's like, no, no, no. Like there should be a black person in there right? Like this is the bare minimum at this point. So I do think that we've gotten to a place where we have visibility, better visibility, I'll say from the outside looking in. So, you know, there's, there's the imagery is there that in itself is progress. And I don't want to diminish that. I think where the industry is lacking is on the flip side, when you're looking at the C-suite and the decision-making positions, you know, that make up these companies, there's not a lot of people of color there. Sometimes there's not a lot of women there, depending on, on the company. Um, And there's definitely not a lot of Black women there. A lot of the times, the only time a Black woman has a C-level position is when she's a diversity and inclusion uh, chief officer or whatever. And that needs to change, right? Like if you're a makeup brand and you're trying to target Black women, you're trying to be inclusive of Black women, but there's no Black women there who can help you with this decision-making process, that's a problem, right? Because you as a white person or any non-Black person, you cannot speak on behalf of a black woman and her needs and, you know, what her foundation shades need to look like, what type of, you know, pigments need to go into a make any makeup product, you know, to make sure that it it works on her skin. It works across all skin types. It's extremely difficult and dare I even say impossible to do that if you don't have that lived experience. And I don't think companies have yet tapped into how important it is to hire people who have lived experiences and using that to strengthen their companies. I don't think people realize that yet, which is unfortunate because I think we'd be much more further along if you know there weren't so many hoops for, for Black women to jump through and they had these positions. So all that said, I do think things are getting better after everything kind of erupted this summer. I did see everybody kind of scattered to fall in line But the fact that you kind of almost had to be forced or shamed into doing so is an issue for me. Like, I think it would be so nice. And there are some companies who have done this genuinely and who, you know, have always been diverse. But it would be so nice if companies just did the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And they didn't just do the right thing because it was a reaction to people calling them out. Yeah, I think those are all really great points. And I have actually thought of that recently is I've seen I was on LinkedIn recently, and I'm seeing all of these job posts of diversity inclusion hirings. And I think it's great. But like you mentioned, it shouldn't be this way just because of what happened this summer. I think this is something that obviously should have been already integrated in their company years ago, decades ago. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to just know your perspective when it comes to 
the beauty industry specifically when it comes to advertising products because, and I'm not as well-versed in, you know, what goes on in the day-to-day when it comes to publishing an issue, but, you know, you definitely go through the products that are being advertised, whether it's, you know, on digital or on print, how does that process work and how has that changed when it comes to advertising products that are geared towards women of color? I mean, I think I always make a point um, to just include anything that's, you know, for women of color or black owned or POC owned. Um, That's kind of just always been the DNA of what I've done. That's why I didn't have to scramble in June because I already had the content there. You know, there was definitely a lot of people who had to scramble because they weren't ready. They didn't, you know, they don't even have one Black person on their staff. And if they do have Black person, oftentimes it is just one person and they kind of, you know, had to scramble. So I think moving forward, diversity is something people need to keep in mind all the time, not just when a Black man gets killed and it turns into something else, right? You know, another thing that people often do is like, if you're only going to white sources for general stories and you're only going to a Black person or a person of color for specific stories that, you know, gear to a specific, you know, cultural experience or whatever, or natural hair article, you need to think about why you're doing that. Like, why do you only go to a black person when you're writing a black story? When, you know, a black hairstylist, for example, can talk about all hair types and, you know, natural, natural hair as well, versus, you know, a stylist who may not know how to work with natural hair. And all they can speak about is like type one to type two hair. You're putting yourself at a disadvantage and you're putting your readers at a disadvantage. Yeah. And you mentioned also, you know, people scrambling in June. How many people would you say went to you for that type of content? Because like you mentioned, you already had, you know, these black owned businesses that you love and that you support. Was it shocking to you when, you know, people did come to you for these sources? No, because I knew that they weren't ready. I mean, I always knew that it wasn't a surprise to me at all when people are scrambling. But what I will say is that it's very telling when people do these things, right? Like if you If the first time you're using a Black expert or you're doing a roundup of Black-owned anything is June, you need to think about why that is, right? Like what inherent biases do you have that you may not even realize about yourself? And this is not to shame anybody necessarily. This is just, you know, think about this. Like, why do you have these inherent biases? Why don't you, you know, already, why are you not paying attention to black owned brands? You know, why are you not back in the day we had events? Why are you not attending black hair care events? Because if you work in the beauty industry, you need to understand beauty, right? And I say this for anybody in the industry. If you're an esthetician, you need to know how to work with all skin types, all skin tones. If you're a hairdresser, hairstylist, you need to know how to work with all hair types, period. Like I have never gone to a non-Black hairstylist ever. And it's not because I wouldn't go. It's because they've never known how to do my hair yeah. ever. Like never, ever, ever. They don't know what to do. So I actually just learned from like when I was a teenager, just how to do my hair myself. And I rarely go to the salon just because of that, you know, but I will say, you know, I wasn't surprised at all. I was actually kind of expecting that to happen. And a lot of people told on themselves and it was really disappointing. But I think here's the thing, you know, as disappointing as it is to see this happen, you can't turn back time. 
So all you can do is hope that people learn from this experience. And sometimes you need to be uncomfortable to learn from things and hoping in the future that they do better. And when they, you know, when they do things in the future, that it's sincere. Right. And I think on that same note as well, you know, if there are writers or editors that are listening, how can they better advocate for Black-owned businesses, women of color businesses, and how can they really educate themselves? And like you mentioned, attending those events and really just reading up on it, but how can they support in an authentic way? You have to care. You have to actually care, you know? And if you don't care, you don't care, but you have to actually give a shit. (laughs) You know, excuse my language. You have to actually care because- it's so obvious when people are not genuine and it comes across in the story and it comes across to other people in the industry, right? And so if you want to educate yourself on why it's harder for Black women to become business owners in the beauty industry, where we spend the most money out of every racial group on beauty, but yet we have, we do not own much in this industry, but we're pouring our money into it. If you want to know why that is, if you want to know why Black women can't access capital, you can Google that. If you want to know why so many Black people are incarcerated for marijuana-related charges, but we have so few CBD beauty businesses, you can Google that. You know, if you want to do the research, you will. You know, there's a plethora of documentaries out there, you know, about inequities for Black people, about racism in America and globally, and all of these things that have come into play that have affected Black people's lives over the past four centuries and and still going. You know, you can read about these things. And if you genuinely care about people's humanity and you care to give somebody a leg up when you are coming from a place of privilege, then you'll do it. If you're just doing it for show, you're going to forget about it in two seconds. So I think the people that actually care are already doing the work. And if you don't care, you don't care. You know what I mean? And you can't force somebody to care about something that they're not genuinely concerned about. Yeah. I mean, those are facts for sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So what would you say is the biggest change opportunity for your industry as a whole? I know we touched a little bit about, you know, really just advocating for change in diversity and, you know, Black-owned businesses. But as a whole, what would you say is the biggest change opportunity? I think more Black women and women of color need to be in decision-making positions. And that requires, you know, white women and white men to speak up on our behalf, because oftentimes that doesn't happen, right? Like people look at us like, we're crazy or we get gaslit or like, you know, a million other things happen. And it's like, it's mostly white men who are in decision-making positions in companies, generally speaking. White men are going to listen to white men. They may listen to white women, but they're probably not going to listen to me, you know? So for the white women who quote unquote get it and who care, you need to be willing to advocate for people and hold companies and whoever accountable, right? Because again, when everything happened in June, everybody was so rah-rah about Black people and elevating Black employees and this, that, and the third. And it's like, okay, well, make sure you're keeping that same energy because when a Black employee comes to you and says, hey, I deserve X amount more money. I deserve you know, this promotion because of, you know, X, Y, Z reason, keep that same energy, you know, that you had in June and actually invest in your black employees because they give your company so much and they're, you know, black culture is profitable. Like we know this and we bring that to the table and that's not something you can get from anybody else. So if you really want us to, you know, make differences here, we need to be in positions where 
we have decision-making power and that's, that's what's going to force the change, but it's not going to happen unless like what I said earlier, people actually genuinely care. And I do want to touch on that a little bit when it comes to, you know, salary negotiations and finding your voice within the industry as a black woman, what word of advice do you have for young professionals, whether it's writers or not in navigating through the industry and just finding their voice and, you know, all of the stuff that we're talking about, I think those are things that we obviously want to happen, but they're just so out of our control with, you know, it's intimidating. White... yeah, for sure. And what would you say is, you know, the best piece of advice that you could give for somebody that's just having a hard time finding their voice within whatever industry that they're in? I think you need to understand that being yourself is your greatest superpower, number one, because nobody is going to be able to do things like you. And if you have genuinely done the work, and you have results and you have numbers to back yourself up, make a document. It, you know, if you're asking for more from your company or whatever, make a document listing all of your achievements so nobody can tell you anything about yourself. And it's so easy to fall into this hole of imposter syndrome or even accepting being gaslit and things like that. But when you doubt yourself, that is an indication that you should be pushing yourself more at least in my opinion, you know, ask for what you deserve. And sometimes even ask for more than what you think you deserve, because you may get it. You know, the worst thing people can tell you is no. And if you feel as though you deserve something and you know, you deserve something and you have the numbers and the results to add it up and they're not giving it to you. And you just feel like there's some type of diversity hire. I think we've all felt like that. Then you know what you need to do next. You need to go to a different place that accepts you and is going to give you what you deserve to have and rightfully so. Yeah. And I think too, with salary, I think it's hard because like you mentioned, if you ask for it and it's not given to you, your first thought is, okay, well, I don't deserve this and I want to move to a different company, but finding another job is hard and it is intimidating. So when it comes to just reaching out to, you know, other black women in the industry, what would that message ideally look like in your head that would make you feel open to responding and giving advice? I mean, I'm going to respond to most people who approach me correctly asking right. for, you know, anything. I, I get it because I've been there before. But I think even if you can't find a job right away, most things are done through word of mouth. So if you're at a company and they are not treating you well, you need to be strategic about the type of work that you're doing at this company. And if, you know, your goal is to get noticed by someone else, then do extraordinary work in order to get noticed by somebody else and then go. Like there's ways around this that, you know, you can do, you can figure out, but like you have to be strategic with your work and you need to put yourself first in everything that you do. You know what I mean? Because a company is a company and it's fantastic to work for a big corporation. But at the end of the day, a lot of these companies, they will lay you off in two seconds and find somebody to replace you. So you need to worry about yourself and you need to be able to create work that you can put in your portfolio and be proud of at the end of the day. And I think that's so important for people to remember, you know, you need to serve yourself before you serve a company. And I think it's really important, like you mentioned, having a portfolio. And I wanted to get into that a little bit because of course you've had experience, you know, gathering your sources and I've actually looked at your portfolio and it's really amazing. So I'd love to know what 
is a credible portfolio in your mind and how can people really work towards getting to that point? I mean, I don't know if there's a way to have a quote unquote credible portfolio. I just think as you kind of go through your career, your portfolio is naturally going to build, like you're going to have more and more bylines. I think just continue to do your best, take every you know opportunity that feels right for you to build your portfolio and just continue to show people that you can do good interviews. Like for example, you know, you could interview a celebrity who you're not maybe the biggest fan of, and they're not maybe the biggest star, but you do a really good piece on it. And then their rep represents somebody else who is fantastic. And then they want to, you know, trust you with the story. And that's kind of, you know, how you build your portfolio and things like that. And also making um, good relationships with editors. Like for example, if you are a freelancer and you are pitching to an editor and your copy is always on time and everything is fantastic and whatever, whatever, editors are going to want to give you more stories. So I think the best way to build a good portfolio is by consistently doing good work. And that should get you there. And I know you started off after university graduating from McMaster, you were a contributing writer for BuzzFeed. So Mm -hmm. can you walk us through how you got that position and what it takes to write for big publications like BuzzFeed and InStyle and, you know, all of the other um, publications that you've written for. Sure. So I think honestly, all the jobs I've gotten have pretty much been through word of mouth. I've never gotten a job, at least in this part of my career. Like, I mean, when I like worked at the mall and I was like 16, I would send a resume in, but um, pretty much every job I've had has been through word of mouth. So when I started writing at BuzzFeed, um, I had a professor who knew somebody at BuzzFeed and she had recommended me and that's how I got that job there. And then from that, it kind of just like, you know, turned into other opportunities and thing, you know what I mean? The more work you have out, the more visible you are for people and the more likely you are to get noticed by somebody. And also when you're in the industry, the industry is very, very small. And it's a lot of, you know, we all know each other in the industry. Mm -hmm. So once you're kind of in, you have the opportunity to make a name for yourself pretty quickly. But I think, again, it just all comes down to doing good work. If you are putting out good work and you're good to work with and people want to recommend you and people hear about you and they, you know, they like your work and, you know, you have good relationships and people put in a good word for you, that'll kind of, it'll work itself out and you'll get into good publications. You'll be able to get, you know, interviews with bigger celebrities, like all of these things will happen, but it it just, it takes time to build these things up. So don't worry about where you start. Just worry about doing good work. Mm -hmm. And I think too, networking and just knowing people is so important. Like you mentioned, all of the roles that you've been able to get are through knowing somebody that knows someone else. So yeah, I think that's really great advice. And what I'd also want to know is I feel like people that look at your role specifically as a senior beauty editor at InStyle or whatever other magazine it may be, it seems so glamorous, but I'm sure like any other job, there are you know, some negatives. And what would you say is the most common misconception when it comes to being an editor for a bigger publication? Well, I mean, first of all, there's no glam right now. We're all at home. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's no glam at all. So anybody who thinks that, you know, this is going to be some glamorous thing in 2020, it's not. You know, there's obviously a lot of perks that come with the job. Like we get to travel, we get to like go to nice dinners, we get to talk to really interesting people who are celebrities or famous actors or whatever. And that's fantastic. But at the end of the day, it's still a job, right? You still have to do the work. You still have to write compelling stories. You still have to understand the basics of journalism. You still have to be able to engage audiences. You still have to be able to do all of these things. And on top of that, even when it comes to the glamorous stuff, the dinners and the 
fashion weeks and this and that, it's still tiring. It's busy. It's a lot of work to do all these things, right? It's not like you're just going to dinners and chilling and, you know, not doing anything. You still have to write about these things. You still have to review them. So it's like, yeah, you can go to a show and, uh, you know, do backstage to, you know, learn about the beauty and the makeup look and the beauty direction, whatever. You have to go home and write about that, (laughs) you know, or you have to do it at the end of the week. So it's not like, you know, you're just going to these things. You're just going to these parties just because it's fun. You're doing a job and you're there to do a job. And and oftentimes, especially with the way a lot of things worked, and I guess in the before days is there's kind of a mix of people that are there now. And there are some people that are literally just there to kind of chill and just have a good time. But when you're there to do a job, and there's a million people there who are kind of chilling and have nothing else to do, they're just, you know, out on the town. There is a frustration that comes with it, right? Because you are there to do a job and people think that you're just there kind of chilling out, doing nothing and taking Instagram photos. And you're like, no, 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 I'm not doing this. I'm doing this for work. I think also a misconception is, you know, people think it's fantastic because you get to talk to celebrities all the time. And yes, it's interesting to talk to people who have these big careers and, you know, they're seen all over television, things like that. But I think you get to a certain point in your career where you just realize these are just people whose jobs it is to entertain us. These are just people whose jobs it is to be on television. These are just people whose jobs it is to make music, to make movies, to make whatever. The only reason why we look at them in a high regard, obviously, because they get paid more, but because we see them on television and there's so many of us who are influenced by them. So I think even the celebrity part after a while, it's not as glamorous as many people may think it is. I think you kind of get over that part really quickly. At least I did. A lot of people are like, do you ever get starstruck? And I'm like, no, like <laughs> not at this point. Like I've been doing this for too long to still be starstruck. And I almost think that, you know, when you act, you can't go into an interview and act like a fan. For sure. You have to go into an interview professionally. You have to go in an interview knowing the type of story you want and having these types of conversations with these people that's going to want to make them open up and share this thing, share whatever it is that you're looking for with you right? Because they don't have to tell you anything. So if you kind of go in there acting like a fan, if you think about the person on the other side, who you know, they deal with fans all day long, it's just it becomes a very bizarre setting for them, right? So you have to go into these things professionally, which I don't think a lot of people realize like so often people be like oh my god what was this person like did they do this blah 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 I love them I'm just like relax like they are an actor they are not the character they played on television or in the film or whatever and they were nice they were fine but that wasn't you know the base of me the conversation wasn't me fangirling over them it was about whatever their project is or their beauty routine or whatever it may be so I think you know, people, that's a, that's a huge misconception too, of just like the fabulousness of talking to stars all the time or whatever. So yeah. Yeah. That's funny to hear because I've always, I've, I've thought of that as well. And I'm not in, you know, the industry, but it's something that you think about like, wow, that's such a great job. You get to talk to these people. So it's nice to get your two cents on that. But aside from, you know, the glamour and the glamour side that, you know, people associate your job with, what would you say is the most rewarding part of your job aside from all of that? I would say the most rewarding part is it's making a difference in people's lives. It's making people feel seen. It's making people feel like they can relate to something. And it also gives people a distraction from the world because it just feels like everything has been getting darker for the past 20 years. Slowly, (laughs) the world has just been getting darker and people need a distraction. People sometimes just want to look at best 10 haircuts for summer to not think about what's going on in the world. You know, other times people may want to read an interview with a celebrity they admire and feel like they relate to them. 
and see themselves in this person that they admire. And, you know, there, there have been stories where, you know, I've written and women have come back to me and just say like, thank you so much for doing this. I had never seen myself represented in this way before. I didn't think anybody knew this thing or, you know, whatever I mean. And those, those are the moments to me more so than, you know, the quote unquote glamorous moments that mean the most to me for sure. Yeah. And I think that's important because, you know, this, like you mentioned, this is your job. This is something that you're going to be doing every day. So you got, you have to love it. You can't love it for the exactly. perks. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's a big thing. I think a lot of people want to get into, especially now because of Instagram and people see the glitz and glam and Instagram is people's highlight reel essentially. And all you're seeing is the good parts. You're not seeing when I'm up at 2am in the morning, you know, writing a feature, writing an interview, you know, while the whole world is asleep. So, you know, if you're in this or you just want to get into this because you want free products or because you, you know, whatever it may be, you're getting into it for the wrong reasons. You have to genuinely care about these things. You have to genuinely want to make a difference. You have to genuinely want to be a storyteller, you know? And I I think it's so obvious when people are in it for the wrong reasons versus people who are actually very, very passionate um, about these things. And I think a lot of the people that just kind of do it for the glitz and glam may not last as long or may not stay here as long when they realize the reality of it's not always going to be glitz and glam versus the people who are kind of in this because this is genuinely what they love and they have a passion for it. Like, I think that's what gives you the longevity is having that genuine passion for what it is that you're doing. Definitely. And I think that's really important. And, you know, for anyone listening, I think all the things you're saying are 100% facts. And I think it's important to have that as, you know, your ground when it comes to entering the industry. I'd love to know what a pinch me moment has been for you over, you know, the course of your career and people that you've been able to work with and the experiences that you've had. What has been your biggest pinch me moment? Actually, I know exactly what it is. So I had written in this journal. So when I first got to New York, let me start from the beginning. When I first got to New York, I was freelancing essentially. And um, I wrote down in this journal, I'm going to be a fashion and beauty editor in New York. I wrote it down three times in three different lines. And when I had started my job at Bustle, my job was fashion and beauty features editor. And I had taken that journal with me So I always have a journal with me at work and I had taken that journal with me to work and I forgot that I had written that. And I, maybe I had written it before I even got to New York. I don't remember, but I had forgotten I had written that. And on my first day, I opened up the journal and I saw those three lines of me writing that. And I was like, damn, like I did it like this exact job, this exact city. I did it. And it doesn't fall short on me that like, yes, like while I'm like, you know, the glam is whatever and this and da, 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 da this is legitimately my dream come true. Like I am living the life I set out to live very much. So intentionally did it, you know, prepared myself like this to do it, but I am very much so living the life I want to live. So it is kind of a pinch me moment, but at the same time, I was very intentional about the things that I wanted and I worked really, really hard to get here, but that doesn't, you know, get lost in me in the fact that it's a blessing that I actually made it to this position and I'm able to do this now. And I want to do this for as long as I can do it for. Yeah. I think that's so amazing because speaking something into existence like that is so powerful and it's just for yourself, right? You're telling yourself that these are the goals that I have and I'm going to do it. And that's exactly what you did. And I love to end things off with what is the best piece of advice that you can give for 
young women that are starting out in the industry that want to follow a similar career path to yours? First of all, believe in yourself. Second of all, stand up for yourself. And third of all, don't be afraid to be yourself because that is that is truly your strongest asset. There's a million people in this world who can write a story and just write a general story. But when you put your own spin on it, and it's very much so your voice and your tone and who you are, even if you're funny and silly and goofy, whatever, put that in your writing. Why not? People want to laugh. People want things that are lighthearted. Not everybody wants to read something that's, you know, sounds like a dissertation. Like add that element of yourself into your work. And even if people don't like it, who cares? You are who you are and not everybody is going to like it. And I think if more women were less afraid to be who they were, we would feel a lot better about ourselves, generally speaking, because I think we're always trying to morph ourselves into something else to be likable. You don't need to be likable to everybody. You need to just like yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that also goes with a quote that I saw recently was comparison kills personality. And I think it's so true. Absolutely. You're trying to compare yourself to somebody else. You're trying to be something that you're not. And we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. You're never going to be able to nourish your own talents. You're never going to be able to nurture what you bring to the table, which is what you should be amplifying. You shouldn't try to be amplifying. Somebody else is already themselves, right? You need to be yourself. And it's a fantastic thing to be yourself. And it's a fantastic feeling when you are so comfortable in your own skin and you are so confident in yourself that nobody can shake you or make you second guess who you are and, and you know what you stand for and what you believe in. It is such a fantastic, fabulous, freeing feeling that you get. And I wish that for all women, truly. Yeah. yeah. And I just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much for being on this podcast and sharing, you know, all of your knowledge and really just being an inspiration to, you know, other women in the industry. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. I am <laughs> so excited for your podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to my conversation with Kayla, hearing her perspective about how the beauty in journalism industry is changing in terms of diversity was so powerful and very much eye-opening. So I hope you took something away from this conversation as well. I'll be leaving her links in the show notes, so be sure to visit her Instagram and portfolio.